Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number four of The Shaping of Middle-Earth. We are approaching halfway through our discussion of the book. Um, so uh, uh, that's pretty exciting, though. I will be sad to be coming to the end of the Quinta. Uh, but the good news is it's unlikely I'm going to get through everything I want to talk about tonight. So we'll probably still have Quinta to discuss next time. But anyway, um, let's... Um, uh, let's... Uh, Let's 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 move forward first. Announcements. Uh, I just want to announce again. This is coming up now very soon. Uh, this Saturday is uh, the Great Chicken Run in Lotro. I wanted to give you the uh, uh, the web link where you can watch the um, you can watch the stream of that uh, if you want to uh, uh, to join us. Um, that will be on Twitch TV slash Mythguardian, uh, the Mythgard Institute. Twitch feed uh, is where that uh, uh, that event is going to be taking place. It'll be starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Saturday and going until whenever I get to Minas Tirith. So <laughs> that's, that's, the, uh, that's the goal. Um, all right, so... Uh, oh, and it will be... Yeah, uh, Tom, there will be a recording. Um, it, it will be archived in the... Um, uh, in the the Twitch feed, uh, I'm not quite sure how we're going to be able to distribute that, but anyway, it should um, it should be it it should be fun. I'm really I'm really looking forward to uh, to Saturday's chicken run. All right, um, let us uh, let us. Uh, get back to the Quinta here. I wanted to start off looking at some of the sort of bigger stuff. I, I raised this last time and I wanted to kind of come, there were several passages in, in, uh, in the latter part of the Quinta reading today um, that really made me want to come back to this. And that is sort of the general question of, of what the Silmarillion is, you know, which is kind of an open question, but it's often one that we kind of don't think about. I mean, think about the number of times if, uh, you know, sort of reading about or thinking about uh, Tolkien's life and publishing history. Um, you know, like you read, for instance, uh, uh, Humphrey Carpenter's biography of Tolkien, and you'll see lots of references to how Tolkien wanted to publish the Silmarillion, and his goal was to get the Silmarillion published, and he was talking to the publishers about publishing the Silmarillion. But what does that even mean? That is, there's this kind of a... Since we've read the book that's called The Silmarillion, right, that was published posthumously by Christopher Tolkien in 1977, we, uh, you know, we have this sort of assumption that it's a given what The Silmarillion is, right? Um, and uh, I think most uh, Tolkien readers who you know, know that the Silmarillion was published posthumously and learn that he wanted to publish it and, and had been hoping and trying to, to get it finished and ready for publication earlier on, have the sort of the vague idea that the, that the Silmarillion is just this thing, right, that was kind of sitting around and never kind of got out. And, and I think that often, you know, when pe people sort of acknowledge the idea or hear the fact that Tolkien was still, that there was so much work to be done to prepare the Silmarillion for publication that might even kind of seem a little bit puzzling. It's, 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 it's not transparent. It's not obvious what exactly that means. Of course, the argument I was making last time is that it's, uh, it's not even obvious, I think, exactly what form the Silmarillion uh, was supposed to take. I mean, there, you can make arguments at various points in his life, what he was thinking of. I was arguing last time that uh, this moment um, 
with his writing of the Quenta, and especially as the Quenta begins to to sort of grow and flourish uh, under his attentions as it goes along, the way it it, it carries on expanding. Um, this 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 seems to be a mode that he's becoming more and more comfortable with, but it's not that it's supposed to stand alone. I I feel more and more confident um, that it's not supposed to stand alone. Um, but um, but anyway, of course, the question that Christopher Tolkien says in the in the preface to Volume One to the Book of Lost Tales Part One to the first volume in the History of Middle Earth series, he explains the whole like his motivation for publishing the History of Middle Earth series is to show people how the Silmarillion stuff grew because when the Silmarillion was published posthumously, lots of people had questions about like how much of this is really Tolkien, how much of this did Christopher write. Um, you know, it seems a little bit unclear as to what exactly we're reading here, and so Christopher Tolkien's like, okay, fine, I'll show you. Um, and this is what we get. It's fascinating. I think that we see um, some of the clearest instances of that kind of editorial process at work here in tonight's section um, than we've gotten at really at any point uh in the History of Middle-Earth series so far. We knew when we were reading the Book of Lost Tales that we were reading earlier versions of these stories, and we knew there was a lot of ground left to come. Obviously, names are still changing, and, and you know, m- many of them were still in, in what we knew to be not their final state. A lot of the stories were still kind of weird and funky. I mean, we still had Tevildo, Prince of Cats, capturing Baron and forcing him to work in his kitchen and all that kind of thing. So... You know, we 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 sort of kind of knew what we were getting, but there was no question of like, and this is now really already the Silmarillion. Now that we're getting into the Quenta, right? Then we get the Ways of Valerian, of course, and once again, we know that the thing that we're reading is not the final Silmarillion, right? Again, what we you know, in, so in those first three volumes, we're clearly getting material that's going to inspire, lead to, get sort of mind for the stuff that's going to become the published Silmarillion. Here, in the sketch and then the Quenta, we are actually getting the beginning of the text of the Silmarillion itself, the beginning of the thing that's going eventually going to become the Silmarillion, and is going to be the answer to the question, what is the Silmarillion? And that's going to be basically the Quenta. Um, but as I say, we, we, we get to sort of see how... The, the position that Christopher Tolkien was in and some of the exact kinds of, uh, of, of decisions that he made. Look at uh, uh, two quick examples, which you probably noticed. Uh, that's if you're reading the commentaries as well, which I hope you are reading the commentaries as well as the primary source text, because uh, uh, Christopher's commentary is very interesting. But anyway, okay. Um, this is, and he's talking about Gondolin. Unhappily, as I have mentioned before, that is in, in Volume 2, the Quenta account was the last that my father ever wrote of the story of Gondolin from Tuor's coming to its destruction. Pause. Wow. Isn't that amazing? You are reading here the last thing. That's why, of course, if you know the published Silmarillion really well, I'm sure you will have recognized big chunks of the description of the fall of Gondolin and what happens immediately afterwards. I mean, there were a bunch of places earlier on where you're like, oh yeah, I hear a really close echo, or I hear a whole sentence, or even occasionally, you know, what sounds like almost a whole paragraph, which is very, very close to what's going to eventually make it into the published Silmarillion. Here in the fall of Gondolin, we're getting huge swaths of stuff. But of course, this is why. There isn't anything else, right? This is, it's only 1930, but it's the last time he'll ever 
write it. He does, of course, start to rewrite the Tuor story a couple decades later in the 50s in the, the Tuor, uh, Tuor and the Fall of Gondolin that we get in Unfinished Tales, but he doesn't get any further than Tuor coming to the gates and seeing Tumladen and Gondolin in the distance and hearing the seven names. We never get any of the real story of the Fall of Gondolin in that, in that version at all. It's unfinished. So, so okay, so just to sort of note the significance of that fact that we're, we are getting that story in its final form, essentially, or, or rather, in its latest form. He never wrote it again. Okay, anyway, and therefore, though the revised chronological structure is perfectly clear, the latest actual formed narrative retains the old story of the founding of Gondolin after the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. So you'll remember, of course, what he's talking about by the chronological sequence. He's talking about the chronological sequence of the founding of Gondolin, right? As you may remember, in the sketch, it's explicit that Gondolin is not founded until after the battle. So when Turgon is fighting with Fingon, right, and they get separated, and the battle is lost, and Turgon and his people are fleeing, and Hurin is doing his heroic rearguard thing, um, and Turgon is enabled to escape. While Turgon and his people are escaping from the battle, that's when they come upon the Valley of Tumladen, right? Omo guides them, and they come upon the, the Vale of Gondolin, and they hide themselves there, and they build the city, and that's when... So, Gondolin doesn't even start until it, it until they stumble across it in flight from the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Of course, we know in the published Silmarillion that's not how it happens, right? In the published Silmarillion, the Vale of, of Tumladen is revealed to uh, Turgon. Olmo, remember, comes to both uh, Finrod Felagund and uh, Turgon in a dream and inspires them both to, uh, to you know, seek out these secret places and build strongholds, uh, which leads Finrod eventually to uh, Finrod Felagund to build Nargothrond and, uh, and Turgon to build Gondolin. Where you'll remember Turgon had originally set up a city uh, at Vinyamar, out on the coast, and then he sort of secretly relocates all of his people bit by bit until they abandon Vinyamar entirely and hide themselves in Gondolin, and nobody, um, nobody, you know, saw them go or knows what's happening with them. So, okay, so, uh, that's the new story, right? So the old story, where they come across Gondolin and found it after, you know, in flight from the battle, and the other one where they went long since come out of Gondolin for the first time to fight the battle and then retreat back into it so that Hurin's desperate rearguard action um, facilitates not the discovery of Gondolin, but the return and the uh, their ability to retain the secrecy of Gondolin in their retreat so that the hordes of Morgoth don't follow them to the gates of Gondolin as they flee from the battlefield. So, okay... That's the change in chronology that he's talking about. So when Christopher says, therefore, though the revised chronological structure is perfectly clear, that is, it is very clear that as the story developed in Tolkien's mind, he decided to change it, right? He decided later on to... Uh, remember, by in the Quenta, throughout the entire Quenta that we read today, the city of Vinyamar still does not yet exist. That's not in there at all. Right, the idea that Gondolin was probably founded sooner is just beginning to peek in, but we still don't have the details worked out yet. Right, um, but it's you know so. But but Christopher can say it's perfectly clear that Tolkien was changing that chronological structure. He was going to have Gondolin exist before the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. So he's told he know on the one hand, Tolkien or Christopher Tolkien knows uh, J.R.R. has completely made that decision. Right, on the other hand. 
he doesn't have a written out version of that, right? The only, the last, the you know, the latest written sto- version of the story still has the old version. So here's <clears throat> his father's only text, which has the wrong version, and yet what his dad wanted to do. That kind of rewriting is, of course, the kind of thing that Tolkien needed to do in order to get the Silmarillion ready for publication. Um, anyway, so we have Against the Words in the Quenta to Replacement for Turgon deemed when first they came into that vale after the dreadful battle, my father wrote an X, note three, but in all the years that followed, he never turned to it again. And now notice in a footnote in his commentary, Christopher's sort of explanation, the passage in the Silmarillion is an editorial attempt to use the old narrative within the later structure. Right? Um, that is, he admits, he, in, in publishing, posthumously, publishing the Silmarillion, Christopher Tolkien had no recourse but to change the text himself. Right, what he was left with was the job of reconciling the last text that his father wrote with the ideas that his father had and what he had wanted to do, what he knew his father wanted to do but never actually did. And so we can see how Christopher seems to be very reluctant to make changes uh, to the to the actual text um, and write his own stuff. But yet he also doesn't want to violate what he knew his dad wanted to have done. Um, Here's another uh, even sort of more explicit example. Um, The absence from the Silmarillion of the fugitives who went to the way of escape and were there destroyed by the dragon lying in wait. It's a pretty cool story, right? And it's it's consistent all the way through. We see it in the the Book of Lost Tales. It's in the sketch. It's in the Quenta, right? That's sort of a major feature. And it's really kind of cool, actually, that there's this huge dragon whose job was just to lie in wait there in the way of escape, so that when refugees came through, he's just supposed to kill them all and prevent anybody from escaping. Um, It's this horrible, horrible, um, but really compelling moment in the tragedy of the fall of Gondolin. And of course, it's not in, again, sharp readers will recall that that doesn't happen in the published Silmarillion. Um, Why is it not there? It is due to editorial excision based on evidence in a much later text that the old entrance to Gondolin had been blocked up. Right? So, that is, he's admitting, though, notice how he's being kind of indirect here. That is, he doesn't use the pronoun I, right? When he says, is due to editorial excision, he means, I cut it, right? I, Christopher Tolkien, removed that from the text, Right, because it clearly did not match with the idea that his father had later expressed that the old entrance to Gondolin had been blocked up. That text is the basis for the passage in the Silmarillion, where Hurin, after his release from Thangarodrum, came to the feet of the encircling mountains. He looked about him with little hope, standing at the foot of a great fall of stones beneath a sheer rock wall, and he knew not that this was all that was now left of the old way of escape. The dry river was blocked, and the arched gate was buried." So, okay, so apparently, Tolkien wrote a fragment, I'm sure we'll get to it in a much later volume in the history of Middle-earth, Tolkien wrote this fragment much later on about Hurin coming there and finding uh, the way of escape blocked up, right? So that text existed, and it existed much later than the Quenta, so Christopher knows this is what his dad was planning for Gondolin, right? Way of Escape should be blocked up. So, he's got to reconcile the 1930 Quenta text, which is the last text he has of the fall of Gondolin, uh, and he's got to reconcile that with this expressed idea of his father's doubtless decades afterwards, right? So 
he just goes through and he cuts the scene about the refugees being killed by the dragon lying in wait, right? That's just got to go because it doesn't fit. And then here's the other kicker. The sentence in the Silmarillion on page 240, therefore in that time the very entrance to the hidden door in the encircling mountains was caused to be blocked up, was an editorial addition, right? Notice, notice what Christopher is saying here. I wrote that. Right. I wrote that sentence Christopher is confessing. Be, you know, It wasn't in the text, of course, but again, it needed to be added in order to explain how the way of escape came to be blocked up. Um, uh, so, he's again, he's admitting the bits that he added in. I think that this kind of glimpse of the actual process, the actual, you know, one example of these actual challenges that Christopher Tolkien is facing and the kinds of decisions that he had to make in order to do this, um, I, I think are really interesting uh, and really fascinating. But of course, um, even, um, uh, even a bigger consideration in my mind is not just the work that Christopher did in reconciling the difficulties, but the shift over time, the de-emphasizing of the poems over time, um, because I am still very convinced. I remain convinced. In fact, I became more and more convinced reading today's assignment about my assertion from last time that the Quinta was really written to be an accompaniment uh, to the poetry that he had written, was writing, and was presumably meaning to finish and hoping to come back to. Um, this is one of those passages which, again, it's almost word for word from the published Silmarillion, because it's always got, right? Of the deeds of desperate valor there done by the chieftains of the noble houses and their warriors, and not least by Tuor, is much told in the fall of Gondolin, of the death of Rog without the walls, and, and of the battle of Ecthelion of the fountain with Gothmog, lord of Balrogs, in the very square of the king, where each slew the other, and of the defense of the tower of Turgon by the men of his household, until the tower was overthrown, and mighty was its fall, and the fall of Turgon in its ruin. Almost word for word from the published Silmar same as the published Silmarillion, with one significant, significant exception, that Christopher Tolkien has cut of the death of Rog without the walls. Right? And he gives a footnote pointing back to his uh, earlier explanation in Volume 2 about why he ends up cutting that from the published Silmarillion. Um, but uh, but apart from that one cut which Christopher made, the rest of this paragraph gets it gets made word for word into the published Silmarillion. Now, um, uh, this is another one of those moments which, in the context of the published Silmarillion, just feels like depth, right? Uh, much is told in the Fall of Gondolin, right? This this idea that there is an epic poem out there called the Fall of Gondolin. Um, we might not be getting the full story, but uh, but you know there is a full story, and there's an epic poem out there, and you can just kind of imagine what that epic poem contains. And here are some glimpses. Um, there are two things that change my that make this paragraph sound entirely different to me when coming at it in the shaping of Middle Earth instead of in the published Silmarillion. One is uh, that, uh, of course, I remember the lost tale about the fall of Gondolin, in which all of those things are described in quite some detail. And Yana, you are certainly not the only one who misses Ecthelion drowning the Balrog and himself in the fountain. Um, that was an awesome scene. I love that scene. Um, there is so much that is really interesting and really powerful in his description of the battle and the suffering and the fall of Gondolin. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's really good material. 
Um, so, so yeah, it, when it was only a tease, and I thought that the fall of Gondolin was merely, uh, you know, the reference to the fall of Gondolin there to the poem uh, was merely there to provide depth and to in, to sort of evoke my own imagination. Um, you know, I thought it was I thought it was cool. Um, once I read the story. Right um, when I first, you know, after first discovering it in Volume Two, again as we're coming through the history of Middle Earth this way, once we've discovered the other version, it begins to sound um, uh, uh, it begins to sound different. Right again, like we are here clearly getting a thumbnail sketch of a story that really exists, not a brief evocative account of you know, a story perceived in the distance, but really just a brief summary of a story that has been told in full and could be told in full and should be told in full. Um, and of course, you couple that with the fact that we know he had begun a poem um, called The Fall of Gondolin, right? He had, he, had, he had already begun a poem, which was clearly going to be the epic poetic version of The Fall of Gondolin. We saw a fragment, sadly a short fragment, of that in The Lays of Beleriand. So, he was beginning that. He was doing that. Um, and it seemed that that appears to be the plan. So I, I take these references to these poems, and again, consistently, there are very few of the poems that he alludes to in this way over the course, over the course of the Quenta for which there is no actual analog among the fragments and poems that he had written or was writing. Um, it seems to be the actual plan to write those things. Um, and therefore... I still think, and I try to imagine, the published Silmarillion, um, which contains basically the Quinta, so you get the summary of the whole story, uh, and then you get basically all of the major stories told in epic poem version, like a, a sort of an epic poem cycle, right? We would get the 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 the, the story, certainly the story of the Kinslaying. Um, we would get uh, the the lay of the children of Horan. We'd get uh, Baron and Luthien. We would get um, the fall of Gondolin. We would get Eärendil and his adventures. Uh, at the very least, we'd get that stuff. Right? Those would uh, would be packaged with um, uh, with the Quenta. Again, I'm thinking especially the uh, the Baron and Luthien stuff. Again, all those references to the lay of Lathian kept intact in the published Silmarillion, again, sound different uh, In when you read them in Volume 4 of the History of Middle-Earth. It is so manifestly a you know, constantly referring back to the Lay of Lathian, which, of course, is a poem that we have read and, and does exist, and which we remember as he's referring to it, you know. So, you know, when he says, uh, uh, you know, then, um, uh, you know, then in the Lay of Lathian it is told that, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I remember that bit of the Lay of Lathian, right? It's a real poem. There it is. Um, it's clearly, clearly a summary, a prose summary meant to just, you know, be part of this whole thing, um, uh, but not to be a replacement in any sense. It's clearly, it's almost apologizing for the fact that it's summarizing, right, by the number of its references to the Lay of Lathian. Um, even the quotation from the Lay of Lathian that we get in the published Silmarillion, right, the, 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 the battle between Finrod and Sauron, where it actually breaks into verse, which is indeed a long quotation from, uh, uh, from the Lay of Lathian. Um, you can see this is not in any way um, meant to be merely a replacement for that work. Okay, 
but anyway, let's let's turn and look at uh, yeah, Nancy. It is kind of melancholy, isn't isn't it? Thinking about this, I mean, that would have been awesome. I mean, just imagine a fully revised Quenta, right? Accompanied by revised and completed poetry cycles. Oh man, that would have kicked butt! What an amazing work that would have been. Um, Oh yeah, it's it's um, it's uh, sad. Um, <laughs> James Leback asks, "Would I give up the Lord of the Rings for it?" Well, no, but I wouldn't have to. There's no reason I would have to. You know, I mean, the fact is, you know, I don't want to point fingers. I'm not blaming the guy. He had lots of stuff to do, um, but he had twenty-five years after he finished writing The Lord of the Rings, in which he could have finished that stuff, right? Um, uh, so, you know, uh, I I, uh, I wouldn't have given up The Lord of the Rings, but uh, I'd have given up some of the appendices. I'd have given up, uh, you know, uh, well, I don't know if I'd given up Appendix A, uh, but I'd give up the rest of them. I mean, they're good. Don't get me wrong. I like the appendices. But if I could exchange those for the epic, for this full version of the Silmarillion, the full poetic plus Quenta version of the Silmarillion, I'd totally do it. In a heartbeat, I'd do it. And uh, uh, and I certainly would give up Unfinished Tales. You know, I would give up, like, the essays on Galadriel and Celeborn and stuff like that. Really cool stuff. Fascinating. But uh, I would I would give it up in a heartbeat for the poetic Silmarillion. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, Tom. I can live without the Shire calendar. I could. I, I mean, I mean, I, I have been living without the poetic Silmarillion, of course. So obviously, I can live without that too. But no, 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 no. I would. I would. I would totally have swapped the Shire calendar. Anyway, bygones. All right. Back to looking at some of the development of uh, of the major stories. Um, I want to I want to just kind of touch on um, in this in doing this. I'm kind of shifting gears a little bit. Um, before I've been in our discussions, I've been want I've been kind of resistant of focusing on how the. Um, you know how these stories are developing and growing and becoming more like the Silmarillion stories that we know. Um, but I found myself really wanting to talk about that today, mostly because um, the latter part of the Quinta I find so exciting in that in that capacity. That is, we see so many of Tolkien's big ideas, like big Silmarillion ideas. We see so many of them coming together. Um, in this latter part of the uh, of the of the Quenta, and I don't mean emerging; I mean coming together. Right? That is, it's not just like this is the text in which these ideas are voiced for the first time. That's cool and everything, but even cooler is the revision process. Right? Seeing like the 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 way that the Quenta gets divided into two, which I know seems like terribly confusing and everything. Um, you know, as if like this all wasn't confusing enough already. But seeing that happen, right? Seeing him... We've got the sketch, right? So remembering the sketch, and then he revises it into the Quinta, right? 
And then we see him writing notes and crossing out things and adding stuff, sometimes really significant stuff, and then rewriting the whole thing and watching the stories develop from one draft to the next right in this really short time and to see how that stuff is all working. It's really, really neat. And and I so I want to look at some of the the kind of major things, the major ways in which Tolkien's concepts are shifting, the way in which some of these stories, several of these stories, are becoming fundamentally different stories uh, in this moment, in the Quinta, and the ways in which we can see that emerging. So let's look at a few of these. First, uh, Baron and Luthien, focusing specifically on their ending. Um, here's the end of the Baron and Luthien story in the Quinta. There beneath the beach, wherein before she was imprisoned, Luthien met them, and kissed Baron ere his spirit departed to the halls of awaiting. So ended the long tale of Luthien and Baron. But not yet was the, lay, was the lay of Lathian, released from bondage, told in full. For it has long been said that Luthien failed and faded swiftly, and vanished from the earth, though some songs say that Melian summoned Thorndor, and he bore her living unto Valinor. And she came to the halls of Mandos, and she sang to him a tale of moving love so fair that he was moved to pity, as never has befallen since. Baron he summoned, and thus as Luthien had sworn, as she kissed him at the hour of death, they met beyond the western sea. And Mando suffered them to depart, but he said that Luthien should become mortal, even as her lover, and should leave the earth once more in the manner of mortal women, and her beauty become but a memory of song. So it was, but it is said that in recompense Mandos gave to Baron and to Luthien thereafter a long span of life and joy, and they wandered, knowing thirst nor cold in the fair land of Broceliand, and no mortal man thereafter spoke to Baron or his spouse. Okay. Um, this is a huge moment. We've talked about, you know, we talked about before, talked about when we were talking about the Lay of Lathian, uh, and in particular looking at the poem Light as Leaf on Linden Tree, which appears in uh, the, the Lay of Children of Hurin. Um, that was all Volume 3 stuff. We talked back then about this moment when the story of Baron and Luthien it makes its big leap, right? It was originally an elf and elf story. They were two different kinds of elves, right? She's, uh, you know, the daughter of Thingol, and he's a gnome, so that was like, there was a, you know, a little bit of a, like a Montague Capulet situation going on there, but it wasn't, uh, you know, this, like, transgressive love which transcends, you know, the boundaries of mortality that we get, you know, of course, which is the, uh, which seems like the very foundation stone of the Baron and Luthien story. So we already looked at the moment in Volume 3 when the story underwent that enormous metamorphosis and really clicked into and became um, that story of mortal, of the union between mortal and elf. But the ending of that story was still unclear. Now, we didn't um, we didn't get, of course, the ending of the story in the Lay of Lathian. The poem doesn't get that far. Um, the poem, uh, f uh, for those of you who missed that class, the poem ends with Baron getting his hand bitten off uh, by, uh, by, by, by Karkaroth. So Baron's got the Silmarillion in his hand, and Karkaroth bites off his hand at the end. Or, well, not the end, but the termination of the poem. Um, so... We don't know exactly where the end of the poem was going to go, um, but we do have the end of the tale of Tenuvio in the Book of Lost Tales, and it's an ambivalent ending. Um, there's not a clear happily ever after. One of the things that we see here, um, the thing that happens, the momentous thing that happens here, um, which seems to me something like the kind of the second epiphany of the Baron and Luthien story, is 
the fact that this, even after it had become the story of mortal and immortal, you know, the, the, the union between mortal and elf, it was not yet a story of sacrifice of immortality on Luthien's part. Um, the idea that she would become mortal by, um, you know, by joining herself to him um, was not a given. It was not a clear part of the story uh, in the earlier version of it. And even, you know, we, we, Christopher gives some kind of, uh, some summaries about what it seems Tolkien was thinking about for the end of the Lay of Lathian, and it's not clear that they get a happy, happily ever after story. The whole she becomes a mortal thing, again, it's all still kind of muddy. That's, he, he's not really worked out clearly the ending of the story. This is the moment uh, where the ending really comes together, um, and we begin to get that element. Um, uh, the uh, say became mortal even as her lover and should leave the earth once more in the manner of mortal women and her beauty become but a memory of song. Um, that element, so that the 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 giving of the love of Luthien, its sort of final depth of profundity of self sacrifice, right? Um, now finally comes in here, but even that impulse that we see him have there that in recompense Mandos gave to Baron and to Luthien thereafter a long span of life and joy. That itself is also a new ending. That is, we see his impulse here. He wants to give Baron and Luthien a happy ending, right? They're still going to die. They're going to become mortal. And so certainly from an elf point of view, this is going to be a tragic ending. Um, you know, the, the, the Luthien's beauty will become but a memory of song. And yet, Baron and Luthien's story ends for them... Uh, in joy, um, even with their separation, and no mortal man thereafter spoke to Baron or his spouse, even just sort of gives the sense that, yes, they're mortal, they've both become mortal, but they hardly return. Um, they may both return as mortals, but they don't return to a mundane life, right? They live this almost holy life, set apart from other mortals. No mortal man thereafter spoke to Baron, um, shows that they've, they're, they're now off in a class by themselves. And where they are is a happy place, right? Um, and speaking of happy places, here's another thing, which is, we see, again, that impulse towards giving Baron and Luthien this, you know, sort of profoundly self-sacrificial but happy ending. Um, we see that, uh, we see that again, um, there, uh, in, 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 a, in a very emphatic change uh, with uh, the Silmaril here, when, when Luthien gets the Silmaril. But Baron took the Nauglifring, the necklace of the dwarves, whereon was hung the Silmaril, and it is said and sung that Luthien wearing that necklace and that immortal jewel on her white breast was the vision of greatest beauty and glory that has ever been seen outside the realms of Valinor, and that for a while the land of the dead that live became like a vision of the land of the gods, and no places have been, have been since so fair, so fruitful, are so filled with light. This is a major change. Major change. Um, uh, so veterans of the Lost Tales class will recall that the curse of meme on the treasure is like the most powerful curse ever. The curse of meme like dominates the whole end of the story of the First Age. I mean, once meme curses that treasure, right? once the Nauglifring and the rest of the gold gets cursed by meme... Um, it is over. I mean, it causes... It, it brings about the destruction of Doriath. The curse, 
right? Because the curse is working upon Thingol and making him greedy, and then it works on the dwarves and brings about the war. Um, and then when so when the Silmaril comes to Baron and Luthien, um, basically Melian comes and is like the Silmaril is like practically radioactive because the curse of Meme lies upon it. But Baron and Luthien are like, "Teehee, we don't care," and it kills her. Right? It is explicit in the Book of Lost Tales that wearing the Silmaril shortened the life of Luthien in a bad way, like the curse of Meme wore upon her and brought her to an earlier death than she would have had. So Baron and Luthien's ending is hastened and made unhappy by the curse of Meme. And then, of course, the Nauglifring with the Silmaril eventually comes down to Elwing, and, and Elwing's own Elwing gets lost at sea, um, and that's blamed on the curse of meme, and like, and thus the curse of meme, uh, you know, had its way. So, like, Elwing's death also is down to the curse of meme, uh, thanks to that uh, that darn Silmaril that's been cursed indirectly by the dwarf. Um, that's changing now. And one of the things that I think that we can see here is this shift. Tolkien obviously loves the story of the Dwarf Kirks. It's a very Norse thing, right? I mean, if you know Norse mythology, this idea of the Dwarf cursing the gold and that curse... I mean, you think about how the story of the Volsungs, right, um, uh, is... The whole thing hinges upon the curse laid upon this uh, gold by a dwarf, you know, and, and it brings about, like, the fall of nations and seems to continue for generations. I mean, it's totally normal from a Norse point of view... Uh, that uh, a curse laid upon treasure like this uh, leads to all kinds of uh, wild and and uh, and terribly destructive things. Um, that seemed to be the story that Tolkien really wanted to write. I mean that 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 it, it was a dominant story, as I said, in the in the la- in the latter portions of the First Age tales in the Book of Lost Tales. It's shifting now. There are two things here that are shifting. One, of course, is the story of Baron and Luthien. He wants to get, he wants clearly he wants to give Baron and Luthien a happy ending, and so we see him car- continuing that here. He did it already at the end of their tale. He does it again here in having not only having the Silmaril not, you know, be this have this like toxic effect on Luthien and kill her, um, but it is amazing, right? It is a blessing. She becomes the visit like. Luthien plus Nekos plus you know Naglamir, uh, which it's going, which it is now in the process of being renamed to the Naglamir, um, and the Silmaril. Those though, that combination becomes the vision of greatest beauty and glory that has ever been seen outside of Valinor. Um, the 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 place where they live becomes like a vision of the land of the gods, and it's not only very beautiful and filled with light, which you might expect because the Silmaril is very radiant, um, but so fruitful. The land itself is blessed by the glory and beauty of Luthien and the Silmaril. Um, We don't see the curse acting directly here. We don't see the curse undermining them in the same way. That doesn't mean the curse is totally dead. Um, it doesn't mean that that story is totally removed. But the, 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 the primacy of the story of the curse of the gold is is being um, subordinated, it seems, in Tolkien's mind, to a couple other things. One, that desire to see Baron and Luthien get, have their happy ending. And two, the rise of the Silmaril. Uh, remember, in the Book of Lost Tales, the Silmarils are important, of course, at the start with Feanor and the Darkening and all that stuff. 
Um, but they really fade to the point where he doesn't even explain where the Silmarils end up. It's not really an important part of the end of the story. Um, but now in the Quenta, as we've already been seeing, the Silmarils are uh, in ascendance in their significance in the story. They are taking a more and more central role. They are emphasized much more throughout um, all of the stories. And this is one of those moments where we can see the story of the Silmarils is kind of trumping the story of Meme the Dwarf and his curse on the treasures. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, okay. Yeah, I think it's what I wanted to say about that. Um, <clears throat> we do still have, of course, the idea that the Silmaril, uh, you know, there's still the sense that the Silmaril might hasten her death because it's too much, right? Too much for the Hither lands. Um, but again, it's much nicer than, like, her life being shortened because she's wearing that pestilent radioactive thing around her neck, right? Um, let's talk about Gondolin. Now, the status of Gondolin is shifting significantly. We see, we see a significant shift from the beginning of, of its treatment in the Quenta here. Um, and when I say a significant shift, I mean a significant shift from what Gondolin meant at the beginning. Again, those of you who read it, cast your minds back to Volume 2 of the Book of Lost Tales, um, and the sto- the first that first and fullest story of the fall of Gondolin. Um, you may remember when we talked about, especially in the first class, when we talked about that uh, story, we were looking at the evidence to believe that that story is very old, that Tolkien is working from a story which quite likely predates all the other stories um, in the Book of Lost Tales. And the sense that we get, um, the Fall of Gondolin gives the impression that, you know, that like in its conception, it was not a late chapter of a long ongoing story, but a freestanding thing. And the sort of the status at the beginning of the story, um, you know, kind of where we join the story of Gondolin at the story of Eärendil and the Fall of Gondolin is, um, or of Tuar and the Fall of Gondolin, sorry. The place where we join this, you know, the, sort of the status of things is post-Battle of Unnumbered Tears, right? There's been a terrible battle, and the elves and humans have been, basi- have been almost completely, def- have been totally defeated and almost completely destroyed. All we have left are a few refugee elves who are kind of on the lam, trying to prevent Morgoth from capturing them, and some captured slaves who sometimes escape uh, from uh, from Angband. Um, and Gondolin is the only city of refuge. So Gondolin is equated with freedom. It is the only place where elves can still be free outside of the, you know, out from under the tyranny of Morgoth. It is like the promised land for all of the oppressed and enslaved elves of Middle-earth. That was the essence, that was the identity of Gondolin, was as this this one forlorn hope for freedom in a world almost completely dark, the one shining light of, of goodness and beauty and safety in the midst of a dark and fallen world. Um, therefore, when we keep that in mind, that that's the that's the sort of the imaginative the imaginative foundation stone of the story of Gondolin, right? Um, where he pushes the story in the Quenta 
becomes particularly interesting. In that city, the folks waxed, mi- waxed mighty, and their armors, and their armories were filled with weapons and with shields, for they purposed at first to come forth to war when the time was ripe. But as the years drew on, they grew to love that place, the work of their hands, as, as the gnomes do, with a great love, and desired no better. Then seldom went any forth from Gondolin on errand of war or peace again. They sent no messengers more into the west, and Syrian's haven was desolate. They shut them behind their impenetrable and enchanted hills, and suffered none to enter, though he fled from Morgoth, hate pursued. Tidings of the lands without came to them faint and far, and they heeded them little, and their dwelling became as a rumor, and a secret no man could find. They succored not Nargothrond nor Doriath, and the wandering elves sought them in vain, and Olmo alone knew where the realm of Turgon could be found. Tidings Turgon heard of Thorndor concerning, uh, heard of Thorndor concerning the slaying of Dior, Thingol's heir, and thereafter he shut his ear to word of the woes without, and he vowed to march never at the side of any son of Feanor, and his folk he forbade ever to pass the leaguer of the hills. Um. Yeah. Now, okay. So, see what happens here. As if we remember the old version of the story of Gondolin, there's this like new significance of what comes to happen with them here, right? There's two elements that I would really strongly emphasize in this description. The first is that they purposed at first to come forth to war when the hour was ripe. That's been an element of the story from the beginning, too. That Gondolin is not only the last hope of the elves in the sense of being their last refuge, but it's their last hope in the sense it's their only hope of victory against Morgoth. And ever since Olmo has been sending messages to Gondolin, the message he's been sending is, fight. Gather gather up your army, Turgon, march out of your hidden gates, and attack. And if you attack, you will win. It's going to be tough but you'll win. And we looked at that before in the sketch. Um, So, on the one hand, we see an interesting shift that was already their plan, or at least it was on the radar screen, right? Um, They intended to go forth and fight, and they lose that over time, so that Olmo's message to them uh, to march out and fight um, falling upon deaf ears is a little bit more conspicuous, because it's not like they never, it never occurred to them. Right, It's not like it seemed to them like a crazy and insane idea. It was an idea that they themselves had too, but they've just since abandoned it. Right, So that's one really significant thing. But the big one is the fact that they shut themselves up and suffered none to enter. Gondolin ceases to be a synonym for safety and refuge. They have hardened their hearts against the very elves whom they originally were conceived as being a refuge for. Right, um, and uh, this is, I think, a pretty clear indictment of Gondolin. It's uh, in its way, therefore, this is, I think, a harsher treatment of Gondolin and Turgon and the Elves of Gondolin than we saw in earlier versions, um, because they, they, you know, they always disregard almost warning, which is never a good idea whenever they do it. Um, but uh, but this is different, right? There, um, in the published Silmarillion, again, if all you read is the published Silmarillion, there's that 
brief reference to this, right? There's that brief reference to how um, that uh, suffered none to to enter, though he fled from Morgoth, hate pursued. That phrase makes it into the published Silmarillion, right? And in the published, if you just read the published Silmarillion, that sounds bad, right? I mean, that seems like a pretty clear red flag that Turgon has lost his way and is, uh, is, 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 is walking down the wrong road. But it's even more significant when we see it in Con- when, when seeing what Gondolin used to be and how he's shifting it, it seems even more significant. Um, yeah, yeah. Tom Hillman says they've become isolationists. They want to hold on to what they have rather than take any step to move forward. Not unlike Denethor's attitude in answer to Gandalf's question of what would you have. Yes, of course. His answer being, I would have things as they have been all the year, all the days of my life. Right? Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, good. So, our framework has changed, right? When we begin the story of the fall of Gondolin, we as readers are put into a different relationship with Gondolin. That is, they are already suspect in a way in which they really weren't suspect before. Um, it was more of a it makes the... Well, okay, I was going to say it makes it more tragic. No, it makes them... Uh, it makes the, it more pitiable, the fall of Gondolin, in the earlier version. Um, here, it makes it more tragic in the sense of... Well, I like... In the sense of the tragic hero receiving the terrible consequences coming to him for the really bad choices that he's made. Um, I... Again, we can kind of see it coming a little bit more. Um, following up on that, look at the way that Turgon's choice has shifted. Um, so remember the choice before in the sketch. The choice was, uh, what do you tell you? He gives him two options, right? Or rather, he's, he's uh, he almost says, okay, you got three, there are three choices, right? Choice number one, plan A, march out to war, right? If you do, it's going to be tough. But Morgoth will be defeated, and the orcs will all be annihilated, and evil will pass from the world, and everything will be awesome, right? So hard in the short term, awesome in the long term. That's plan A, Turgon. Plan B, if, should you choose not to do that, plan B would be, take your people, leave Gondolin, come down uh, the river to the sea, I'll help build you ships, and I'll ferry you back to, 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 to Valinor, right? So, so... But now, you know, the world is going to stay evil, right? Morgoth isn't going to be defeated, but I'll give you and the people of Gondolin a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? That's plan B. So those are the two choices he gives them. Of course, plan C is don't do anything, but he tells them not to do that, right? Don't, don't, if, you, if you stay, the, the place is going to fall, right? Um, now watch... Now, as I read this, I want you guys to be making some ob- observations. Tell me, what is important about how the how the choices have shifted, right? What what things do you notice about the shift in Olmo's options? But now Olmo bade him make all speed to Gondolin, and gave him guidance for the finding of the hidden door. This is Tour, of course, we're talking about. And a message he gave him to bear from Olmo, friend of the elves, unto Turgon, bidding him to prepare for war and battle with Morgoth ere all was lost, and to send again his messengers into the west. Summons two should he send into the east, and gather, if he might, men, who were now multiplying and spreading on the earth, unto his banners, and for that task Tuor was most fit. 
Forget, counseled Olmo, the treachery of Oldor the Accursed, and remember Hurin, for without mortal men the elves shall not prevail against the Balrogs and the Orcs. Nor should the feud with the sons of Feanor be left unhealed, for this should be the last gathering of the hope of the gnomes when every sword should count. A terrible and mortal strife, he foretold, but victory if Turgon would dare it, the breaking of Morgoth's power, and the healing of feuds, and friendship between men and elves, whereof the greatest good should come into the world, and the servants of Morgoth trouble it no more. But if Turgon would not go forth to this war, then he should abandon Gondolin, and lead its people down Syrian, and build there his fleets, and seek back to Valinor and the mercy of the gods. But in this council there was danger more dire than in the other, though so it might not seem, and grievous thereafter would be the fate of the Outer Lands. All right. Tell me what you know. Same general outline, right? Plan A, attack. Plan B, run away, right? Uh, plan C, stay, but if you do, you'll die. Um, what do you notice? Tell me what you notice. Good. Brian says the role of tour in gathering men is more important. Yeah, tour is given that same role. Remember, in the sketch, tour is uh, almost says that tour is to be sent to Hithlum. Uh, to rally the people there, like the people of Oldor the Accursed, essentially, who've been shut up in Hithlum ever since the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. But, um, uh, so this is kind of a bit of an expansion, right? He's to head off into the east and gather up people. So you're right, Brian, kind of the the uh, the, the the warrant of Tuor is is broader, right? He's supposed to go and rally all the men, right? So we got the we got sort of the, you know the reinforcements of the race of men coming in in a much bigger way. Um, so yeah, Tuor's role is very is very significant there. Um, good, James Omo isn't promising the help of the gods in this version. Now, remember, we talked about this before. Uh, in describing Plan A previously, both in the Book of Lost Tales and in uh, in the sketch. Omo says, if you attack, I promise, if you attack, the Valar will help you, right? I'll come through, I'm going to go to the Valar and get them to get off their butts and come and join in, if you attack, right? If you attack, I promise that I'll hold, if you hold up your end, I'll hold up my end and I'll bring the Valar in to come and help you, right? Um, But James, that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is, well, what is the emphasis? What is the emphasis on in plan A? in the battle sequence. Just focusing on plan A for now. What's uh, what's the emphasis? Yes, Brian, I think that's a great way to describe it. Bringing elves and men together. Reconciliation is the emphasis, right? That is, the situation is not just the evil of Morgoth is winning and the last hope, right, of the light needs to boldly go out and strike against it, even though it might appear hopeless from where you're sitting, go and strike against it and the Valar will come and help you and everything will turn out and it'll be sort of a eucatastrophe, except he's predicting that the eucatastrophe is going to happen, right? That was kind of the situation before. Here, it's different. There are wounds that need to be healed, right? Men and elves need to be reconciled. Forget Oldor the Accursed. Remember Hurin. 
right? I know elves and men, uh, you know, elves hold, grie- you know, hold a, a grievance against men because of the betrayal of Uldor and everything, and it's, it's awful. Remember, it's one of the shifts that was made in the description of the Battle of Unnumbered Tears in the Quenta. Um, we get Uldor the Accursed for the first time there, um, and the, uh, uh, the, the men don't just run away, they, they become even worse. So, uh, so okay, so the reconciliation of elves and men, but notice it's not even just that, right? Nor should the feud with the sons of Feanor be left unhealed. We come back to that specifically, that that apparently superfluous reference um, in the previous passage. Go back to the previous passage for a second. When we get this down here, uh, where is it? Uh, the business about the sons of Feanor. Yeah, oh yeah. And he vowed to march never at the side of any son of Feanor. Uh, well... I mean, that's kind of a moot point, right? Since he's vowing that nobody's ever going to leave and nobody's ever going to come in, the fact that he's never going to march with the Sons of Feanor, how would he march with the Sons of Feanor if he's never going anywhere? Um, So, um, uh, but, so I mean, it seems almost a little bit superfluous, but the significance of that reference seems to be explained by this emphasis later on, right? The fact that Turgon is harboring bitterness, quite understandable bitterness, right? Uh, quite deserved rancor against uh, the sons of Fanor. They have done really bad things, uh, and it's perfectly justified in one sense to be uh, uh, upset with them, yet almost says that breach has to be healed, right? There has to be for- forgiveness. Men fences with the sons of Fanor, all the Noldor, the last remnant of the Noldor need to hold together. Men fences with humankind. Men and elves need to stand together against Morgoth, and if they do, they'll win. This becomes the significance, therefore, James, of the observation that you made of him not promising the help of the Valar. He's not saying, do the right thing against all odds, and you'll win because the Valar are going to come and swoop down and make it happen. Right? Instead, he's saying the elves and men united with each other, all of them united with each other can defeat Morgoth, but only if they all come together, right? And, yeah, Karita, it's more of a rebuke in exactly the way you described. Karita says, you know, basically the message is quit fighting with each other, fight with the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, basically. And that quit fighting with each other, right? That, that There is an element of rebuke there. Um, I know you're mad at the Sons of Feanor, I get it, but get over it, Right? That breach needs to be healed. I know Uldor betrayed you guys. Get over it. That breach needs to be healed. Um, there's um, there's there's more of a moral responsibility placed upon Turgon in that way. And yes, as Yana points out, and as uh, 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 who was pointing this out before, um, um, was it Nancy or? Um, oh, oh, no, Yana, it was you before. <laughs> Yana twice. Um, that Victory is not nearly as, as guaranteed, right? Um, he does say that they'll win if they march out, but notice in Plan B, the main difference with Plan B is that he, you know, Brian, as you pointed out, he's not going to help them to build their fleet, and he does not give them that same assurance of success. And, and Yana, he absolutely doesn't say, you know, doesn't say that he guarantees they're going to get through. In fact, he says the opposite, right? Um, he says it's going to be awful. 
right? If you, it's going to seem like the safer choice, right? Between marching out to battle and running away and trying to return to Valinor, Plan B is going to be awfully tempting, right? Because it's going to seem like by far the safer choice. Um, but in that council, in Plan B, there is danger more dire than in the other, though so it might not seem, and grievous thereafter would be the fate of the Outer Lands. So it's going to be bad for you, but it's going to be worse for the Outer Lands, right? Know that in choosing B, if you choose to run away, you are abandoning the Outer Lands to Morgoth, and he's going to rule, and it's going to be completely awful, right? So... um, it's a really fascinating shift, and it seems to go along with that shift in sort of the concept and foundation, the way that we see the, the moral responsibility we see them being given uh, for turning their backs on the rest of Middle-earth. Their choices, the choices that they have been making, already anticipate their answer, right? They're already moving in the direction that they're going to keep moving in, which is, ironically, not moving, right? Staying put. Um, so... This, yeah, so this kind of dimension, um, sort of moral dimension of Gondolin is, uh, is, it's not 100% new, um, but it's a, 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 I think, a really significant shift um, in the story of Gondolin. One last point I want to make on the subject of the sort of the greater Gondolin story before we move on from it. Uh, the connection between Olmo and Willows, right? Olmo came and appeared before him. Now again, good Silmarillion readers will remember that really climactic scene of the storm on the shore and Olmo rising from the sea, right? And uh, addressing uh, Tuor as Tuor is there by the empty, uh, by the abandoned city of Vinyamar, right? And it's it's very dramatic. And, and that, that image of Olmo rising from the waves is uh, is, a, is is a very evocative image. And it might seem, therefore, a little strange and a little tame for Olmo just to come strolling across the grass, not even standing in the water, right? He's strolling across the grass um, and talking to Turin while Turin is in, uh, you know, Nantathrin, the land of willows. Um, But I want to just sort of to try to see if we can kind of move past the apparent weirdness of that event. For one thing, of course... Uh, geographically, this is almost necessary because Tour doesn't go anywhere near the coast. There's no Vinyamar, right? There's no Vinyamar. There's no prophetic suit of armor waiting for him in Vinyamar. Um, uh, there's none of that, right? Um, Tour's experience is a purely inland experience. It's one of the things that really emphasizes his uh, his his uh, call to the sea, right? His attraction to the sea, um, how the the longing for the sea is in his heart thereafter, because he's he's not even been there, right? He's not he's it's not that he has been to the ocean and still remembers it. Just encountering Olmo inland has awakened this stirring and desire for the sea within him, which never dies. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so Olmo instead comes to him here in the land of willows. There Olmo came and appeared before him, as he stood in the long grass at evening, and the might and majesty of that vision is told of in the song of Tuor that he made for his son Eärendil. Thereafter, the sound of the sea and the longing for the sea was ever in Tuor's heart and ear, and an unquiet was on him at whiles that took him at last into the depths of the realm of Olmo. Now, for one thing, it's not as strange as it might seem. That is, there's something that's actually quite fitting 
about this initial concept, and it's been this way from the beginning. Uh, uh, Olmo has always met Tuor in the Land of Willows, uh, and will until Vinyamar gets invented, right? Then there will be a shift. Um, but it's always been in the Land of Willows. Why? Well, the Land of Willows... What, what sense does that make? How does that function in the story as we see it here? Well, for one thing... Um, the main emphasis of the role of the Land of Willows in the story of Tuor, it is always a place of rest and peace. In fact, it's so peaceful and so lovely in, in the Land of Willows that Tuor kind of gets distracted and he wants to hang out there forever. And Olmo has to be like, dude, get a move on and get up to Gondolin already. Um, so it's associated with peace and refuge and uh, recovery. Again, remember, Tuor's had a rough childhood, right? He's, uh, he's grown up, uh, you know, in the post-unnumbered tears world, um, and he's rarely experienced the kind of security or calm and peace and happiness that he meets in the Land of Willows. So the fact that Olmo would come there and speak to him there, um, in this realm of peace, which is, of course, partially created by the magic and influence of Olmo, um, it, 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 it seems to work. It seems to make sense. It's, you know, Olmo doesn't speak to him in a dangerous and scary moment in the midst of a scary portion, you know, a scary, intense portion of Tuor's life. Instead, it just, uh, it is, it is part of this sort of peace and reassurance. Yeah, Karina, it's almost like willows have a sleep-inducing effect. Yeah, it's almost like that. Um, you'd think like the willows were singing to him or something and encouraging, you know, singing to him about sleep. Um, but of course, we should remember, and this is kind of a reminder that, and again, I almost like it better. I mean, like Olmo rising out of the waves is, of course, very fitting, but Olmo appearing near a river in the inland in the land of willows is kind of a lovely reminder of the fact that Olmo is everywhere, right? Yes, water is his, but but he's not just he doesn't just live in the deep ocean, right? Um, he is concerned with all of the water of Middle Earth and especially with the river Syrian, and he is. Uh, and he is the one who, the, of all the Valar, the one who is most vigilant in paying attention to what's going on in Middle-earth. So the fact that he appears to him here, and of course, willows, right? Where do you find willows? Why willows? It makes a lot of sense, actually. Tell me about willows. Exactly, Yana. They, 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 they always grow near water. I mean, you're not going to see, uh, you know, a, a, a land of willows is not going to be, you know uplands, right? Willows grow by water, or even in water, right? Um, so, so yeah, yeah, it, it uh, willows, willow trees are going to be in places where you're, you know, you're sort of at this sort of mingled area of water and land, right? You know, where, so it, it makes, it's, 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 it's extremely fitting um, with that. Now, Arthur asks about the, the, bit at the end, um, that took him at last into the depths of the realm of Omo. Uh, does he live underwater? Well, the fate, ultimate fate of Tuor is really unclear. That last note uh, that Tolkien puts in the Quenta suggested that he lives, like, out at sea. Um, uh, so, um, uh, so the realm of Omo might not necessarily be deep under the sea, um, but just out in the sea. He, he and how, uh, he and Idril seem to, to live on a boat uh, for the rest of their lives. Um, but uh, anyway, so um, good, let's talk about it. Eärendil. 
Um, A. Arundel. As we've talked about before, and we spent a long time looking at this in Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2, A. Arundel is a really weird character in the history of Tolkien's mythology. I don't think there's any weirder character. Um, in fact, I'd even say I think that Arendel is probably the weirdest character in Tolkien's entire corpus. I don't know anybody weirder than Arendel. And what I mean by weird is I find Tolkien's own conception and the development of Tolkien's conception of Arendel stranger than his conception of or development of any other character. It's not that he is personally odder. Like, yes, of course, Yana, Tom Bombadil would out-weird Arendel head-to-head, right? If you met the two of them, you'd be like, that guy is weird, right? Probably Tin Feng Warble too, Mark, I agree. But nevertheless, I actually... But the conception of those characters and the development of the conception of those characters makes much more sense. They're weird, but their weirdness is like a stable, comprehensible weirdness. A. Arendel's story is just flat bizarre and the way in which his story develops. Um, so, it all begins with A. Arendel, right? With A. Arendel's name. And this concept of A. Arendel, the wandering star, we get that early poem of A. Arendel, which we talked about when we did the Book of Lost Tales. Um, that early poem of Arendel, which is uh, uh, describing Arendel the star um, and his wanderings and adventures. Um, this idea of the, the not just wandering, but renegade star, um, there's something uh, sort of intrepid and defiant about Arendel in those early poems. So the heart of his story in the Book of Lost Tales, right? I mean, if you give, like, the story of Arendel, the story of Arendel is his many adventures, right? It's, there's, it's not one clear story arc. There is no central thing that he accomplishes, right? Like, with Baron, we get, you know, the story of Baron is the story of, of his relationship with Luthien and the recovery of the Silmarils, right? That's, like, the heart of Baron's story. Arendel has no event, that is the heart of his story. He's he was originally a wandering star, right? Pursued by the by the moon, uh, and he remains an adventurer, right? Just having a long series of voyages in which he does lots of daring do, including killing Ungoliant very prominently, um, and it's never clear, ultimately, what his real point is. So, but at the same time, he's described in these incredibly portentous terms. So, it would be understandable enough if Arendel started off as this wandering, rebellious star thing and becomes this adventurer who sails off on journeys and has lots of trips and Tolkien really kind of likes it and everything and, okay, fine. So he continues to tell the stories of Arendel and, you know, maybe they even grow to be long stories and whatever. Um, but, you know, kind of 
outside the linear movement of the larger plot of the first age, right? Kind of a side of like a spin-off TV series, right? The Adventures of Arendel. Arendel would make an uh, the stories of Arendel would make an awesome serial TV show, right? Not serial TV show, episodic TV show, right? Could run for years. The Voyages of Arendel. That's the kind of thing that it uh, um that it seemed to be accurate exactly. He's the original, it isn't the destination, it's the journey guy. But, but again, the thing that makes it so weird to me is that there are moments in Tolkien's stories when he raises the expectation that Eärendil is like the central figure, not just one that he really likes, not just one whose adventures are going to take up a lot of space, but that there's something really portentous about him. In the story of the fall of Gondolin, I mean, man, the way they talk about Eärendil, um, they it, the, the the narrator of the of the fall of Gondolin makes it sound like the whole story of the city of Gondolin and its fall is just basically a preamble. Like this story is important because this is how Arendel came into the world, right? And we get this ex- like what sounds like overtly messianic language of like the child who was born, and I mean it's and it's it's quite remarkable. So. Again, we have all these experts. Okay, here's Arendel, right? The promised, the destined child. Which, and it's like Olmo was trying, like, a big part of his point of bringing Tuor to Gondolin was to get Arendel conceived. This was super important. And yet, we never find out why it was important. Arendel never accomplishes anything. And this is true all the way through this sketch. Indeed, it's true all the way through ver- the first version of the Quenta, where he, he's, he's... He makes it to Valinor, which seems like a super big deal, right? And then he... <laughs> gets there, and everybody's gone. And he just turns around and leaves having spoken to no one and accomplished nothing. I mean, we talked about this when we talked, at the, when we talked about this sketch, how the arrival of Eärendil in the empty city of Toon after the elves have already left. To go, I mean, the, 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 the elves have already come back to Middle-earth to save them, and he gets there after they're already gone, and is like, oh, oh, well, I guess he was just looking for his wife anyway, right, With whom he's, from whom he's been separated, and, and he goes off and continues his desperate... So again, his story becomes a purely personal story of his separation from his wife and his desire to recover his wife, whom, like, in some versions he might, but in most versions he doesn't uh, succeed in doing. And all of the build-up seems to just kind of peter out. Finally, finally, in the... Quenta 2 version, right? As Tolkien revises uh, the Quenta, we finally see Eärendil's destiny come into focus, right? He actually accomplishes something. So here, um, this is uh, in version 1 of the Quenta, we get our first glimpse. In those days, Tuor felt old age creep upon him, and he could not forbear the longing that possessed him for the sea. Wherefore, he built a great ship, Earame, Eagle's Pinion, and with Idril he set sail into the sunset and the west, and came no more into any tale. In the earlier versions, this was all, like, Earendel was, you know, Omo comes to Earendel and is like, you must sail into the west, and Earendel's like, 
okay, but actually, I really just want to look for Dad, right? And so he he's like, oh, yeah, I'll totally sail into the West, but really, he's just looking for his father, and he's not really interested in sailing into the West. And then when he finally does, and almost plans that he's been uh, 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 trying to achieve are accomplished, nothing happens. Okay, uh, but Arendel the Shining became the lord of the folk of Syrian and took to wife fair Elwing, and yet he could not rest. Two thoughts were in his heart blended as one, the longing for the wide sea, and he thought to sail thereon, following after Tuor and Idril Celebrindel, who returned not, and he thought to find perhaps the last shore, and bring ere he died a message to the gods and elves of the west, that should move their hearts to pity on the world and the sorrows of mankind. Arendel has had an epiphany! Hey, I could do something with my life, right? I could go on some adventures that have a point, that even connect to the big story that we're telling here. I'd like to bring a message to the gods and elves and move their hearts to pity and ask them to come and help us in Middle-earth. Wouldn't that be cool if I could accomplish that, right? So we finally get... Yeah, exactly, Arthur. Or I could just try to find Mom and Dad, right? One or the other. Right, he's, but the two are blended at least in his mind, Arthur. Right, he's leaving, hoping for you know a twofer, basically on on his uh, on his on his voyage. Now, of course, this is in Quenta one, right, the first version of the Quenta, uh, and he he fails. Right, at least he has the plan, but it doesn't pan out. He still gets to 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 to, to core after the elves have already left. So the 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 uh, what are they still called? Quenya, right? The Quenya, who will be the Vanyar eventually, have already left and the rest of the Noldor, and so he goes and he finds, you know, the city, he finds Kor empty, uh, and, um, uh, and, and, you know, wanders around for a while, gets the dust of diamonds on his shoes, and leaves, disappointedly. But, but the seed has been planted. And, of course, there's that really momentous note that Tolkien scrawls in the margin, saying, oh, have Arendel be the one to deliver the message. Wow, that would be really cool. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that 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 just might work out, Tolkien. Give give that a shot, right? So in the second version of the Quinta, we get finally the version in which uh, he uh, uh, in which things work out. But notice it's not just the story of Arendel that's shifting. The story of the Valar gets shifted as well. I will say I think the Valar come across looking awfully bad in the early versions of Tolkien's mythology. I mean, um, especially like once the Darkening happens, after the exile of the Noldor, when the Valar really fall out of the main picture and we don't really know what they're doing, they look shallow, petty, and incredibly short-sighted. Um, in the Book of Lost Tales and in the sketch and in the early Quenta, um, where Olmo is the only one who cares a lick, and the rest of them are sitting, just sitting over in Valinor being like, I'm still angry at the gnomes. I'm not going to do anything, right? I, like, I'm not paying attention. I don't care. I'm just, I'm just sitting here in Valinor staring at my own navel, right? And then Olmo's like, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll talk those, you know, short-sighted fools around. Um, to Turgon, right in his message in the sketch. Now we get a we get we get that story shifting, uh, shifting around a little bit. I have a I have a, a hard time. 
coming up with a defense for the Valar's actions as depicted in these early versions, but we, we, we begin to get their story coming around a little bit, too. In Valinor, Olmo spoke unto the Valar of the need of the elves, and he called on them to forgive and send succor unto them and rescue them from the overmastering might of Morgoth and win back the Silmarils wherein alone now bloomed the light of the days of bliss when the two trees were still shining. Or so it is said, among the gnomes, who after had tidings of many things from their kinsfolk, the Quendi, the light elves beloved of Manwe, who ever knew something of the mind of the Lord of the Gods. Ah, so this is the first time in a heck of a long time that we're getting some insight into what Manwe is actually thinking over there, right? But as yet, Manwe moved not, and the counsels of his heart what tale shall tell. So, on the one hand, Olmo's going over and trying to get them to come over, and they're saying no. That kind of looks bad, but I think this is actually a step up for them. On the one hand, they're refusing to move, but on the other hand, um, the only thing more pathetic than the Valar simply refusing to have anything to do with Middle-earth anymore is the, the idea that uh, that Olmo could like bring them around like this. Right? All he's got to do is go over there and say whatever it was he was going to say, and he can, he, can, he can make them change their minds and come over. That makes them look even, even sillier and, uh, uh, and weaker. So the fact that Manway moved not and the counsels of his heart what tale shall tell suggests actually he had a plan, right? He wasn't ignorant. He wasn't not paying attention. He didn't not care. There was a reason that he wasn't moving. In fact, it almost suggests that it's Olmo who's short-sighted, right? Olmo is the one who's been involved. He's uh, got the intelligence from the ground, and yet uh, Manway has a big plan, right? But it's unknown, certainly, apparently, to the Quendi and certainly to the gnomes. But anyway, there's at least a chance he might have a plan. The Quendi have said that the hour was not yet... So this is their theory about what Manway was thinking. The Quendi have said that the hour was not yet come, and that only one speaking in person for the cause of both elves and men, pleading for pardon upon their misdeeds and pity on their woes, might move the councils of the powers. Oh, so Arendil is destined. He's been foretold. It is the destiny of Middle-earth that they only can, for some reason, it's only appropriate for the Valar have to wait for one to come in person. So we now have retroactively justified all of that messianic talk about Eärendil, which fizzled out so disappointingly in the earlier works. Now we see he does have an important destined role. Right, That role is now finally given to him, and Manway knows it. Right? So it's not that Manway is blind to it, he's just waiting for the hour to come, the hour foretold, when it is right for this to have, uh, for this to have happened. Um, and wait, and there's more. And the oath of Feanor, perchance, even Manway could not loose until it found its end, and the sons of Feanor relinquished the Silmarils, upon which they had laid their ruthless claim. For the light which lit the Silmarils the gods had made. Okay, um, notice, notice that, um, the other, see the significance of this, or at least one potential significance of this, um, the oath of Fan, or perchance even Manway, could not loose until it found its end. Why are the Valar not doing anything? Why is Manway holding off? Because he's leaving the Noldor free 
to make their choices and to reap the consequence of the choices they have made, right? Um, Olmo is speaking of, you know, asking the Valar to forgive the Noldor and send succor unto them and rescue them from the overmastering might of Morgoth. And the answer to that is they're still reaping what they sowed just now, right? The Oath of Feanor can't be... We're not just going to override the choices that they've made, right? It has to find its end. Um, And it's linked with the Oath of Feanor specifically and the relinquishing of the Silmarils by the Sons of Feanor, right? Only then will things be really be fully reconciled. So again, this this thing has to play out. It may seem cold, but it's got to play out, right? And we have, and we need to wait. The time will not be ripe. We will only know that the time is right for us to change our policy and intervene when one comes to speak in person for the cause of both elves and men. Um. Okay, so Arendel now. He has a destined role. He finally has a job uh, and an errand to perform, and he can finally do it, and his coming can now be the opposite of anticlimactic, right? Now his arrival is like the climax of history. So major shift from come and wander around an empty city, come arrive too late, wander around a, 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 an empty city and beat, right? That's, it's now very different. Sort of. It's still a little anticlimactic. The watchers, that is, the, there were just a few watchers on the on the walls of Toon, right? Um, the watchers rode, therefore, in haste to Valmar, or hid them in the passes of the hills, and all the bells of Valmar pealed. But Eärendil clomb the marvelous hill of Kor, and found it bare, and he entered into the streets of Toon, and they were empty, and his heart sank. By the way, the word of the day today is clomb, past tense of climb. Um, I insist uh, that everybody use the word, use the form clomb, past tense. I I shall now uh, uh, attempt to use the word clomb as the past tense of climb on every occasion that I possibly can for the remainder of my life. Um, He finds it empty, still. Why? <laughs> Why does he still find it empty? Um, I don't know. Tolkien loves this image. Um, no, and I justify that statement. I know, that, you know, I often make disclaimers, and I'll make them again. I don't know what Tolkien was thinking. I can't really say what Tolkien was thinking. Um, all I can see is what we have, right? All we have are the texts that are left to us here. But when one particular concept down to details of description is retained in revision after revision after revision after revision, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the author was pretty attached to that particular thing that gets kept and kept and kept and never cut out, especially when the entire context of the scene has been changed, indeed reversed, right? Where originally his arrival at core uh, was his arrival at an abandoned city that the elves have already left because they've already gone to Middle-earth. Um, 
and now he is coming to summon them, and he's supposed to come to deliver a climactic message, so you'd think that context would necessitate his arrival at a populated place, and his meeting of people, in order to, you know, deliver the message that he's supposed to come and deliver. And yet, despite the fact that the context has almost reversed, we still get Tolkien continues to cling to this... See, he does not want to give up this image of uh, he walked now in the deserted ways of Toon, and the dust upon his raiment and his shoes was a dust of diamonds, yet no one heard his call. Right, And his heart sinking in the empty streets of Toon, it is very consistent. Yes, they're at a fe- they're, 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 they're at a feast now, right? Um, but the feast wasn't there, or there was no reference to the f- to the time of festival before, right? Um, that's a new interven- That's a new invention in this version, and it seems to give an, just to provide an excuse for him to show up at an empty city still. Um, I you know, and I don't I don't know if it's the, the 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 detail, the consistency of that detail, and the dust upon his raiment and his shoes was a dust of diamonds. Um, that seems to me to be. Um, to be a, uh, a, a the the striking visual image. I wonder if that was just such a, a a core picture in Tolkien's mind. You know, like that is Arendel arriving in Elmenholm, him walking through these glorious, gorgeous, but eerily empty streets with the dust of diamonds upon his raiment and his shoes. If that was just locked into Tolkien's you know, sort of visual imagination as, like, what Arendel's arrival meant, um, that he just refused to change it. And it's nice, you know, I... I mean, <clears throat> I'm not complaining, but it's a little weird that he, uh, he, uh, insists on still a reduced but present anticlimax in uh, in Arendel's arrival, but then we finally have the anticlimax undermined. Wherefore he went back under the shores and would climb once more upon Wingalot his ship, but no one un- but one came under the strand and cried unto him, "Hail, Arendel, star most radiant, messenger most fair." Hail, thou bearer of light before the sun and moon, the looked-for that comest unawares, the longed-for that comest beyond hope. Hail, thou splendor of the children of the world, thou slayer of the dark, star of the sunset. Hail, hail, herald of the morn. That's a lot of titles. Um, yeah, Arthur, I do think slayer of the dark is a remnant of the tale where he kills Ungoliant. Yeah, which... Still is there. Uh, it's still he still does that. Um, it's in his pre going to Valinor voyage, right? He still has a, a voyage in which which could be made into a shorter run series of episodes. Um, but um, but now, yeah, now you get the sense that Arendel is now in a is now in a in a serial television show. He's now in a, a season or two of, of of the Silmarillion film project rather than just a, a purely episodic uh, running series of the adventures of Arendel. Um, and he's a star again. Star most radiant, messenger most fair. Hail herald of the morn. He's the morning star specifically, which he always was, right? 
Um, he is returned for that. He is now the looked for that comest unawares, the longed for that comest beyond hope. Hail thou splendor of the children of the world. That's the kind of language we were used to about Arendel, right? Um, thou slayer of the dark. Now it's like there's a point to that, right? This is the fulfillment of that uh, of that of that moment. Okay, so and the important thing, and this is more than any of the others. It's most fun to read these. That uh, what is it? Section seventeen uh, of the Quenta. Um, the the Arendel bit, looking at Quenta one and the notes in Quenta two, um, is is I think most cool to see the um, uh, to see the, the 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 way that this story grows and to finally find Arendel coming into his own as the central figure in the story that he will. It's always been kind of applied, he implied he would be, but he never was, and now to see him uh, coming to be. But what about his personal story? What about the story of him in Elwing, which was the dominant element of the story before? It's what he was voyaging for, first to find his dad, and then to try to find his wife, and, uh, you know, the, the poor guy. Well, isn't it cool when we got the tragedy averted, right? I mean, at first, remember, Elwing threw herself in, 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 like, threw herself to her death, but then she's saved by Omo and made into a bird, but then she's a bird, and he's looking for her, and she's looking for him. They're not finding each other. That's why he starts flying in the first place, right? To get a, uh, to get a, a, a bird's eye view, as it were, uh, looking for her. Um, but Omo bore her up, and he gave unto her the likeness of a great white bird, and upon her breast there shone as a star the shining Silmaril, as she flew over the water to seek Arendel, her beloved. And on a time of night, Arendel at the helm saw her come towards him, as a white cloud under moon exceeding swift, as a star over the sea moving in strange course, a pale flame on wings of storm. And it is sung that she fell from the air upon the timbers of Wingalot, in a swoon, nigh unto death for the urgency of her speed, and Arendel took her unto his bosom. And in the morn, with marvelling eyes, he beheld his wife in her own form, beside him with her hair upon his face, and she slept. It's a beautiful passage, almost exactly what's in the published Silmarillion. And this is the moment where this, where this emerges. Notice the shift here. Far from having desperate attempt to find my long separated and probably dead wife, be you know, far from that being sort of the whole point of the end of his story, we have her coming straight towards him, and indeed we have her with the Silmaril bound on her becoming the sort of foreshadowing. Right, um, she sort of shows him the way. Right, shows him his own destiny. He sees like his own destiny reflected in her. Right, as she comes across the darkness with the Silmaril shining in front of her as a star over the sea, moving in strange course. Right, she's like a star, um, and then she falls. And then you know the the just the 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 the, the real beauty of him taking up this bird that has fallen on the deck nigh to death and to take it. Uh, under his bosom, not having any idea that this was his wife, right? And then finding with marveling eyes that he beheld his wife, and that this bird upon which he had pity uh, and which he took in, and apparently uh, took to sleep with him in his own bed, in bird form, right? You know, just so the, the sort of the the, the personal care and uh, 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 and and you know TLC was giving uh, to this poor suffering bird and it's to turn out to be his wife it's it's beautiful it's lovely and I love the uh, it's and there's another one of those gorgeous Quenta moments right um, 
as a white cloud under moon exceeding swift, as a star over the sea moving in strange course, a pale flame on wings of storm. Oh, so good. Um, so this is great. So, and again, so she makes a beeline for him, right? No separation. He and Elwing are a team. No problems. Um, except there are. Right? In those days, the ship of Eärendil was drawn by the gods beyond the edge of the world, and it was lifted even into the oceans of the air. Marvelous and magical was that ship, a starlit flower in the sky, bearing a wavering and holy flame, and the folk of earth beheld it from afar and wondered, and looked up from despair, saying, Surely a Silmaril is in the sky, a new star is risen in the west. But Elwing mourned for Eärendil, yet found him never again, and they are sundered till the world endeth. Therefore she built a white tower upon the confines of the outer world, in the northern regions of the sundering seas, and there all the seabirds of the earth at times repaired, and Elwing devised wings for herself, and desired to fly to Eärendil's ship. But she fell back. Really frustrating that in this sentence Tolkien's handwriting gives out, and Christopher even Christopher can't make out what he said uh, here exactly happened to Elwing. But they're separated, and they're not reunited in this version. So he's going to do the happy ending, and then he, he then you know, the happy ending is cancelled, right? And we're going to do the tragedy after all. But notice again, it's even, even now, it's a tragedy with a different focus. The similarity between this and the older versions, um, when the two of them are separated and seeking for each other, but fruitlessly, um, the similarity, to me, really emphasizes the now the difference of the entire frame of the story of Eärendil, right? Sort of the whole stature of the story of Eärendil. Now, his separation from Elwing is not a mere tragic accident, right? He went off on voyaging, and she was sad and staying at home, and then he eventually was like, gosh, I kind of miss my wife. I think I'll go back. But, oh, by the time he gets back, he finds his wife is gone, and she threw herself into the sea, and maybe she's a bird, and probably not, and I don't know, and I'm going to go seek for her without hope, and she's looking for him, and it's all very... But that's it, right? That's the whole focus of the story now. He's... His... uh, boat, his ship is drawn by the gods beyond the edge of the world, lifted into the oceans of the air, right? His ship is made marvelous and magical. He's fulfilling this destiny. We see him bringing hope to Middle-earth with the Silmaril upon his brow in the sky as a star for the first time. Oh, that is for the first time in this story, doing the, the star of hope thing, right? So he has this high destiny, but it comes at a cost, and the cost is the tragedy, right? So now his separation from Elwing is not merely, you know, the melancholy end of his own rather idiosyncratic personal drama rather it's now the sac- it's like it's almost like Luthien's sacrifice right except where Luthien sacrificed her position for this you know her sort of role in the world for the sake of her love for Baron Eärendil and Elwing have to do the opposite right they have to sacrifice their love for each other for the sake of Eärendil accomplishing his destined task right um yeah so we get the tragedy but it's now different 
But darn it if Arendel hasn't become the wandering star again, and he's still being hunted by the moon like he was in that original poem ever so long ago. And the final description of Arendel in the last section of the Quinta strikes me as really odd. After the triumph of the gods, Arendel sailed still in the seas of heaven, but the sun scorched him, and the moon hunted him in the sky, and he departed long behind the world, voyaging the outer dark, a glimmering and fugitive star. He's a fugitive star again, right? It's not like I am majestically sailing through the skies, bearing my message of hope for the peoples, right? That's not what he's doing. He's hiding from the moon because the moon is persecuting him, right? The moon and the sun are bullies, and he's a fugitive, a glimmering and fugitive, so he's running away, right? And they're kind of protecting him. Then the Valar drew his white ship Wingalot over the land of Valinor, and they filled it with radiance and hallowed it, and launched it through the door of night. And long Arendel set sail into the starless vast, Elwing at his side, and then tragically, remember the note we're talking, just crosses that out, right? Ah, no, Elwing isn't at his side. Um, the Silmaril upon his brow, voyaging the dark behind the world, a glimmering and fugitive star. And ever and anon he returns and shines behind the courses of the sun and moon, above the ramparts of the gods, brighter than all other stars, the mariner of the sky, keeping watch against Morgoth upon the confines of the world. Thus shall he sail until he sees the last battle fought upon the plains of Valinor. In the end, Eärendil's story returns to the story that there was originally. He started off as this wandering renegade star, right? Uh, mixing it up, causing some trouble, going where he's not supposed to go, finding new frontiers, and doing his thing, right? Um, that was Eärendil, the the wandering star, at the beginning. It then morphed into the Mariner, who has a whole bunch of adventures and does lots of things and wanders around intrepidly, but in the end uh, ends tragically and doesn't accomplish much, though it seems like he's supposed to. Um, now, he has achieved his great mission, and we've got, you know, his story has now been transformed into the essence of it, into its final version, and yet he now he returns to being the Wandering Star at the end, which he never really sort of was in that same way uh, during that middle period. So, Arendel's story. Just a, like the story of the story of Arendel is just a wacky, wacky story. Um, last few notes, and then I'll... You know, I am threatening to finish my material tonight. It's close. Um, uh, last few... Um, Last few notes. The departure of the uh, faithful ones uh, to go back into the west. But Fionwe marched through the lands, summoning the remnants of the gnomes and the dark elves that never yet had looked on Valinor, to join with the captives released from Angband and depart. And with the elves should those of the race of Hador and Beor alone be suffered to depart if they would. But of these only Elrond was now left, the half-elfin, and he elected to remain, being bound by his mortal blood, in love to those of the younger race, and of Elrond alone has the blood of the elder race and this of the seed divine of Valinor come among mortal men. Um, I find this really odd. So Christopher Tolkien emphasizes, uh, Christopher Tolkien finds this passage super odd, and what he finds most strange and significant is that uh, those of the race of Hador and Beor should be suffered to depart if they would, that humans, 
humans of the house of Hador and Beor are being given an invitation to come into the West as well. This is an unprecedented thing in any versions of these stories. And Christopher sees in this the first glimmer, the the seed from which the Numenor story is going to grow. We're not at Numenor yet, right? Numenor doesn't exist. Um, We don't have the Numenor story. But this is the, the thing which is going to germinate into the story of Numenor afterwards. That seems entirely plausible. I'm totally willing to buy Christopher's reading of that. You will also notice that Elros has appeared, but it seems to be a late change. Remember, one of the things that um, Christopher explains is so difficult. There's so many, you know, uh, places where Tolkien has crossed stuff out and written stuff in the margin, and it's not always possible to tell when Tolkien... Did he do that, like... Later on, the same afternoon, he wrote the story. Did he do it 25 years later when he came back and reread it later? Because he did that all the time, right? Anytime he picked up and read any of his earlier stuff, he'd often go through and make notes on it. Um, uh, so, you know, the uh, Elrond crossed out to Elrond and Elros, and the child, you know, the son being pluralized to sons um, uh, of, uh, of, of Elwing and Eärendil. Um, that happens here in Quenta 2. But again, it only happens in the notes. And this strikes me as a late change in that, because one of the things which is the biggest giveaway, Christopher talks about this quite a lot, the thing that's the biggest giveaway of a change that is contemporary with the writing of this document is if the change becomes incorporated into the text as first written later on, right? So, for instance, the shift from calling the continent Broceliand to calling it uh, uh, Beleriand, we know happens at this time, because he writes Broceliand all the way through the whole, all the first sections, and he crosses it out, but it's crossed out with Beleriand written above it. Um, But we know it happened at this time, because by the time we get to the end of the Quenta, Beleriand is what's there originally as written, Okay. So we know that that happened then. It seems to me that Elros, the addition of Elros, is likely not at this time, because Elros is never written in as first written. And in fact, when we get this here in section 18, Elrond is still the only one, right? Where there's no there's no hint of his brother here. Um, so when exactly did Elros get penciled into the Quinta? Was it now-ish? Was it much later? Hard to say as yet, um, but anyway, we're still not we're still not in in the Numenor story. This is, if Christopher's right, the first brief glimpse of it. I have to tell you, these sentences sound to me almost comical. Um, that is the the juxtaposition with the elves. Should those of the race of Hador and Beor alone be suffered to depart if they would? So, <clears throat> so Fionnwë has stipulated. Absolutely everyone, 100% of the, of the, the race of Hador and Beor may depart, but they're the only ones. And then the next sentence, but of these, only Elrond was now left. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that kind of sound like Fionnwë is like, everybody who is descended from Hador and Beor can depart. And Elrond's like, ah, actually, it's just me. I, I'm, I'm the only one left. And, uh, no thanks, I'm good. 
<laughs> so, so actually, what sounds really grandiose, like the door is open for humans to go into the West, what a big deal. Actually, no, it's just Elrond got a personal invitation, but since he happened to be the, <laughs> the, the all of those of the race of Hador and Beor, um, you know, it could, uh, uh, it, it could, I mean, it almost sounds like Fionnwe is trying to make a big deal of it, right? Like, we're going to take all these men, right? Every single one of you can come. Oh, 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 it's just the one? Oh, oh and you don't want to come? Well, we invited you, right? Can't say men weren't invited. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the... But it just this is why it seems to me comical, the juxtaposition of all of them. But Elrond was the only one. Um, anyway, and of Elrond alone has the blood of the Elder Race and of the seed divine of Valinor come among mortal men. That kind of the, notice the highly portentous language we get of Elrond. Elrond is obviously a really important figure here as well. He is not important because he occurs in the Hobbit. He already was important back in twenty six when he was writing the sketch. We had that same kind of talk about Elrond. Um, Elrond already sounded like a big deal. Why is he a big deal? This is why he's a big deal. It's a big deal because. He is the, you know, yes, there were a couple different marriages of humans and elves, but it's all come down to this, right? Elrond alone uh, is the last of the half-elven. This is why Elrond in The Hobbit is so weird, right? And that line in The Hobbit that says that um, there were still in those days people who had men, uh, who had heroes of old and elves uh, as ancestors, and of these, Elrond was the chief. Um, that's why that line in The Hobbit sounds so weird, because at the same time that he's writing that line in The Hobbit, he is going so far out of his way to say, and of Elrond alone has the blood of the Elder Race come into... So there is no question of a clan of half-elven uh, with Elrond as the chief. Um, so yeah, this is uh, this is why it seems pretty clear to me that when... Tolkien includes a character which he names Elrond in The Hobbit. It's not simply an identity. It's not simply the same person and the same story being brought in. Um, Another really significant shift that might not sound like much if you don't pay close attention, or if you haven't been going through the whole history of the Benoist series with me, um, The Return to the Lonely Isle. But in the West, the gnomes and dark elves rehabited, for the most part, the lonely isle that looks both east and west, and very fair did that land become, and so remains. But some returned even unto Valinor, as all were free to do who willed. And the gnomes were admitted again to the love of Manway, and the pardon of the Valar, and the Teleri forgave their ancient grief, and the curse was laid to rest. Okay. Quiz. Book of Lost Tales quiz. Why is this a big deal? What happened here? Christopher doesn't emphasize it very heavily in his commentary, but this is a big deal. Huge change in the end of the First Age. Enormous. Anyone recall? Why were the elves in the Lonely Island before? Why were the elves who returned from Middle-earth living in the Lonely Isle? In the Book of Lost Tales. So the ones who went forth in the Faring Forth, came to Middle-earth, defeated Morgoth, 
Yeah, yeah, Yana and Arthur, they were exiled. They, were ex- they weren't allowed back into Valinor. The Faring Forth, when the elves went out, or one of the Faring's Forth, never mind. Um, anyway, when the, when the elves returned to the, to, uh, to the Great Lands, to the Hitherlands, to the Outer Lands, to Middle-earth, when they returned to fight Morgoth, they did so explicitly against the orders of the Valar. They did it in defiance of the Valar. And the Valar were ticked off at them for doing this. The, uh, um, yeah, Matthew uh, Hershenroder was, was saying this too. Um, they, 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 they did this not just without the blessing, without the permission, against... The, they went into exile. It was like the Noldor all over again, except this time they were going on an errand of mercy. See how bad the Valar look in the early works? Right? The, the elves are like, hey, we want to have mercy on our kinsmen who are you know, dying over there in Middle-earth and have almost been destroyed. We want to go help them, and the Valar are like, no, you can't go. And if you go, you can't come back. And the elves are like, fine, we're going. And then they won't let them back, so they stay in Tol Arisea when they return. Um, that's no longer true anymore, right? Now, then this, of course, seems to be linked to the shift in the Arendel story. Now that Arendel has come, the hour has come for them to come. Now it's, now it's totally copacetic for them to go over, right? Now the elves are going with the Valar, or at least with the children of the Valar, and uh, the time is right, and they're doing this with the blessing and sanction of the Valar, so they're allowed, they, the elves who return, are allowed to go back to Valinor. Many of the gnomes and some of the Ilkarins, the dark elves, especially those that lived in Doriath, um, they choose to remain. They choose to remain in Tol Arisea. And why do they choose to remain? Because they because the isle looks both east and west. And we come back again to that innate connection between the elves and Middle Earth. On the one hand, they're kind of happy to see the, you know, to to to, to shut the door on their Middle Earth experience, right? Um, they're totally fine with going back into the West, but they don't just want to. They they still don't want to leave it entirely behind. So they stay at Tolarasea as this kind of halfway place, right? This place which looks to the west, but also still looks to the east and is not completely shut off from the Hitherlands. That seems to, that element which we saw before in the elves, remember how they wanted to live out on the shore and they wanted to, to open, you know, they, 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 Valar had to open the Calicurium for them to um, be able to, to see the stars and breathe the air of Middle-earth and all that stuff. Um, so now the big deal is not, there doesn't need to be a reconciliation between the elves and the Valar. The only reconciliation that's out there is the reconciliation between the Teleri and the gnomes for the Kinslay, Right? And the curse of the Noldor is finally laid to rest, and that is the sort of the ending. Um, and no, Arthur, I think the calling of an ancient—I mean, it's been a long time. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I don't think I don't think calling an ancient is signaling any kind of uh, any kind of um, change. It just is referring to the fact that that gr- the kinslaying seems a long time ago now. After all that has uh, all that has happened. Um, but yeah, I, I believe that's 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 what's being referred to there. Now, um, one of the last points that I would make from the last section is that is not a concept that has changed and developed, but a concept which hasn't changed, and that is the mythology for England. Um, this we talked about a lot when we were looking at the Book of Lost Tales. Tolkien uh, talks, you know, very famously talks about his 
early desire to make a mythology that would be a mythology for England. And when we read the Book of Lost Tales, we talked a lot about how the Book of Lost Tales was, was explicitly designed to be that is the mythology for England. We can see him doing that there. Um, and the how England came to be in the place that it is and why it has the shape that it has and why how Ireland got broken off from it and um, why it is that elves live there. Um, uh, all of these things are explained in the Book of Lost Tales. It's still being explained here. He's, he's shifted the story, right? The story has changed, but the essence of it hasn't changed. Yet not all, that is not all the elves, of course, would forsake the outer lands where they had long suffered and long dwelt, and some lingered many an age in the west and north, and especially in the western isles and the lands of Lathian. Now, again, this is another line which is familiar from the published Silmarillion. Would not forsake the outer lands where they had long suffered and long dwelt. That long suffered, long dwelt thing is in the Silmarillion, and some lingered many an age in the west and north. This, in the published Silmarillion, is a setup for explaining the kingdom of the the the, the uh, explaining Linden, right, and how Elrond and Gilgalad stayed there. That's not the context in the Quenta, right? We're not expo- we're not talking about we're not talking about Linden. We're not talking about Gilgalad. Um, we're not talking about uh, we're not even talking about Elrond. Speci- you know, uh, we, we're going to get to Elrond, right? That he's there. Um, but but again, that's not the point. We're not talking about the kingdom of Elrond, right? What we're setting up is the Western Isles in the lands of Lathian. Beleriand has sunk, but there are still some bits of Beleriand left that are islands in the Western Sea now. And among these were Maglor, as has been told, and with him Elrond the Half-Elfin, who after went among mortal men again, and from whom alone the blood of the Elder Race and the seed of Divine Valinor have come among mankind... Right? And then we'll give his whole genealogy to explain how that happens. But ever as the ages drew on and the elf folk faded on the earth, they would still set sail at eve from our western shores, as still they do, when now there linger few anywhere of their lonely companies. Again, the context here is not a bridge into later stories of Middle-earth, as it, of course, explicitly becomes in the published Silmarillion. Instead, it becomes a mythic explanation of how you can still find elves sailing away from England, right? When now there linger few anywhere of their lonely companies. And I hope that some of you... um, I hope that some of you remember some of the poems that we read in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, The phrase, uh, lonely companies, should remind you of uh, the wonderful poem Cortirian Among the Trees um, that we read way back at the beginning of the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1. Um, the Lonely Companies, that's something the elves of England are called the Lonely Companies um, in that poem. Um, and that, th- that whole last phrase, when now there linger few, uh, when now there linger few anywhere of their, of their lonely companies, um, that's an echo of Cortirian. Among the trees, that's that's uh, uh, but that the um, when now there linger and 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 lonely companies are both words and phrases that 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 that, that echoed that poem very directly, um, which is a poem about being in England, the place where the elves once lived and which w- once was great, but now is is a realm of men, but you can still hear and perceive if you 
take the trouble to do so, and especially in the winter time, you can still see and hear uh, where the uh, lonely company still linger. Um, England now, it used to be, of course, as most of you will remember, it used to be Tol Arisea. The idea in the Book of Lost Tales was that Tol Arisea um, gets dragged over to Middle-earth and becomes England. Um, it's not Tol Arisea anymore. Tol Arisea is still out in the West, but now it's a piece of Beleriand, right? Part of this, so the heritage of England is the heritage of the whole First Age Silmarillion story, right? This land, this place where the elves had long suffered and long dwelt, England is one of the last remaining chunks of that. Um, that still survives. That's the mythological history now of England. So, you know, he, in his later years, he, Tolkien talks as if he quickly abandoned the idea of the mythology for England. Hasn't gone away, right? Still, still there, still around, um, still kind of going strong, though he sort of talks about it differently and he's reconceived it. He's not changed his mind about the general concept. Two last quick passages. Um, one, I can't... Um, yeah, good, James, exactly. James notes that the Shire gets dropped into this role at the start of The Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, yeah. And you think about the, the links at the beginning of The Hobbit, too. Um, you know, uh, how he speaks as if you can still find hobbits, or, or you could if you weren't a galumphing big person who made a noise like elephants that hobbits can hear a mile off, right? All that kind of language at the beginning of, of The Hobbit still suggests the connection. Um, and not an ancient one, right? Not these are the stories of the ancient days in our world. That's the version of the history that he develops later on. We don't seem to be there, actually. Certainly not at the time of the writing of The Hobbit. And James, as you point out, even even in the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, that seems less obvious. But anyway. Um, it's one la- uh, Okay, no. Two. Two final passages. I've got, I've got two more slides. And I'm going to do them, by golly. Um, notice what happens here. This was the judgment of the gods when Fionwe and the sons of the Valar had returned unto Valmar. Thereafter, the outer lands should be for mankind, the younger children of the world, but to the elves alone should the gateways of the west stand ever open, and if they would not come thither and tarried in the world of men, then they should slowly fade and fail. This is the most grievous of the fruits of the lies and works that Morgoth wrought, that the Eldalie should be sundered and estranged from men. Note, Olmo's vision of a united elf and, you know, of elves and men united never comes to pass. So things work out, but they do fail. There still is a consequence of Turgon's choice, right? There was a, Olmo believed anyway, Olmo said there was a chance that they could change this, in it, but it doesn't work out, right? Morgoth is defeated, but he kind of he kind of wins a little bit. Um, and notice how the lies that he told the Noldor have kind of come to pass. Not only um, have men usurped the sunlight uh, and usurped the lands that once the elves had, but the Valar do it. Right? The Valar keep the elves over in Valinor so that the men can... Uh, I mean... It doesn't happen for the reasons that Morgoth says, but it does come to pass. Um, 
And again, this strikes me as odd. This strikes me as this this conception of things strikes me as strange. That ultimately, it's hard to come to the end of this. It's hard to come to the end of the Quinta, for me anyway, and not to feel that the Valar kind of have failed. Actually, um, like I said, I, the Valar don't really. The Valar only get better over time. His 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 treatment of the Valar. Um, and finally, a last quick note. Some al- some say also that Morgoth at Wiles, secretly as a cloud that cannot be seen or felt and yet is, and the poison is, creeps back, surmounting the walls, and visiteth the world. But others say that this is the black shadow of Thu, whom Morgoth made, and who escaped from the battle terrible, and dwells in dark places, and perverts men to his dreadful allegiance and his foul worship. Um... I am not, of course, saying that in this that this passage is deliberately inserted in the Quenta so as to facilitate a sequel, right, in which Sauron would rise again and we could tell a story about that. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that when you read this passage, which Tolkien is writing at the same time as he is writing The Hobbit, right, so the, the, the continuing presence of Thu, uh, uh, the necromancer, in the world, um, him popping up in The Hobbit is not at all surprising, because that was still in Tolkien's mind. But, uh, going back and looking at this passage, thinking about when, you know, uh, uh, the publishers are coming to him and saying, we really want a sequel to The Hobbit, um, uh, uh, and the fact that he would sit down and, and, you know, the Lord of the Rings would begin, and, and he would he would come with, uh, you know, with Thu, um, who dwells in dark places and perverts men to his dreadful allegiance and his foul worship. He's already got that, right? It's already right there, um, very, uh, very accessible to him, uh, and kind of ready to go. So anyway, um, thank you. I made it. I completed 100% of my 19 slides tonight. How about that? And uh, next time we will go on, we'll, we'll, we'll glance briefly at the appendices to the Quenta and then go on to, uh, uh, to chapters, what, four and five, um, uh, which, are, uh, which are shorter. But um, it, this material becomes a little less sequential, right? It gets less narrative, right? And more lore and kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, but anyway, read through chapter five, and we'll uh, we'll discuss them. You know, please do point out stuff that you uh, stuff that you notice and observe, uh, and be ready to point out some of those things um, that you might want to talk about uh, next week when we meet again. So, thanks everybody, and I will. And yes, James, I'm going to talk talk about the horn of Ilmir, the the horns of Ilmir. I can't possibly resist talking about that poem. We'll start with that next time. Anyway, thanks everybody. Good night.